First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 13 is where I want to direct your attention and we're going to uh, find our way to verse 16. So, ooh, we'll be all right. Are you okay? Just embarrassed, that's all. All right, First Samuel chapter 13. Now, when we first started uh, going through Samuel, we talked about the fact that some Sundays we'd have long passages of scripture and we we're going to read them. Because when we read God's Word, it's the only perfect moment of our service. Uh, that is the only perfect time we have. So we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 16, through chapter 14, verse 23. So you follow along in this next scene in the battle between the Israelites and the Philistines, starting in verse 16 of 1 Samuel 13. Saul and his son, Jonathan, and the men with them were staying in Gibeah and Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned toward Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another toward Beth Haran, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone into the pass at Michmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying at the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahutub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come on then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say, Wait there until we come to you. We will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if we say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer uh, followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. 
Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did it, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Elijah, Ahijah, Bring the ark of God. At that time it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. So the main theme of the life of Saul, the first king of Israel, is fear. Fear manifests itself in these chapters, in chapters 13 to 15. This is the main chapter, passage of Scripture in Samuel, devoted to describing Saul's reign. And um, we see here almost a case study of what happens when the man who's supposed to lead God's people is instead controlled and constricted by fear. This passage works... Uh, because it's built around contrast between Jonathan and his father, between Saul and his son Jonathan. Actually, most well-told stories have some sort of contrast like this, especially stories that are intended to teach us, right? There were three little pigs. Two of them, uh, they were all threatened by a big bad wolf, but two of them were lazy and built their homes out of straw and sticks. But the third one, the industrious pig, built his house out of bricks. And he alone survived the huffing and puffing of the big bad wolf. Or, if you think about uh, the story, uh, who will help the little red hen turn the grains of wheat that she found into a loaf of bread? Uh, Not the cat, not the rat, not the dog, not the duck, not the curly-tailed pig. Not one of them would help make the bread, and not one of them got to eat the bread. Contrast. Good stories have contrast. Here we have a father and a son. The father's life is marked by fear and rituals and indecision. And the son's life is one of bold and decisive action. Which one do you want to be? Well, which one are you? Well, this morning, uh, we've walked through stories in Samuel in a variety of ways. Today, what I want to do is just methodically, we're going to move through the text. We're going to talk about the three great scenes in it. I want to show you those scenes and talk about what happens in each one. And then I want to suggest to you from that scene something that we can learn about fear and faith in this contrast between Saul and his son. So let's start with the first scene. I'm going to title it very simply because this is the context, content of it. The Philistines dominate the Israelites. And we see that here in verses 16 through 22. Uh, This is episode two in the conflict, the most recent conflict between these two nations. The battle lines are drawn, and in every way, the Philistines are dominating the Israelites. They outnumber them. We talked about that last week. There are 3,000 chariots in the Philistines, 6,000 charioteers, and as many soldiers as the number of sand on the seashore, grains of sand on the seashore. Hard to say. Uh, They have... Uh, With their numerical superiority, not only do they dominate the Israelites by numbers, but they have them trapped. They're they're strategically, uh, they've trapped them. They've cut off any help that the Israelites might have from northern armies that might come to help them. And uh, the Philistines are so numerous 
they're sending out raiding parties in three different directions that are keeping the Israelites trapped. They're, they're dominated. They're dominated also by their technologically, technological superiority. The Philistines have iron weapons and the Israelites have only weapons of wood and stone. The text talks about that. There's no blacksmiths in all of Israel. They're in an entirely different technological age, aren't they? uh, The Israelites are in the stone era and the Philistines are in the iron age. We have found, actually archaeologists have found smelting crucibles in this area where the Philistines live that date to this period of time. Uh, they kept the Israelites from getting swords and spears, and actually they charged them terrible, high, terribly high prices for sharpening their farm implements. The only soldiers among the Israelites who have uh, iron weapons were the king Saul and his son Jonathan. Uh, verse 22 is actually one of the um, uh, handrails, perhaps, that moves the book of Samuel along do you remember, uh, we've talked about this story and how there are certain things that, that, that make the story move or that connect these scenes together. One of them we talked about was the issue of the head, the human head. No razor ever touched Samuel's head. He was a Nazarite. Then we talked about how Saul was a head taller than all of the other Israelites, head and shoulders taller. And then David chops off Goliath's head. So whenever the head is mentioned we see this story being woven together. It's one of the stitches. Or here, it's weapons. Saul and Jonathan have weapons. Um, David uses Goliath's own sword to decapitate him, and later he goes to retrieve that sword for battle. Um, Who has weapons and what they do with them is, again, one of the stitches that keeps this book together. This is a really well-written story. It's it's different than how we tell stories, but uh, it's... um, put together so uh, skillfully. I hope one of the things that happens as we move through this book is that you learn to appreciate more how Hebrew narratives work. Swords or weapons is one of the elements here. Robert Borgen says that the Philistines are dominating the Israelites so much here and this domination is described in a way that's supposed to remind us of the Israelites and what happened to them when they were fleeing Egypt. Remember? Chariots. The Israelites were outnumbered by Pharaoh's army. They were trapped between the army and the Red Sea. This story is deliberately written in such a way so that we think about that scene uh, that happened so many hundreds of years before this. What we have here in this scene is a description of how God himself put the Israelites in an impossible situation. Why are they there? Because God put them there. Now, by, by saying that, I'm, I'm acknowledging my view of God's power and God's sovereign control here. The Israelites are in a mess, and they're there by divine appointment. Some of it has to do, I know, with discipline. God's disciplining them for Israel's uh, faithless king, Saul. But he is in complete control there. Why are they there? Because God wants them there. Ephesians 1, 1. Uh, 111 says, God works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, temptation, and this is certainly a temptation issue here, time of temptation. Paul wrote that God doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. 
He controls it. He limits it. They're here because God put them here. A.W. Pink was speaking of God's sovereignty. He says, because God is God, he does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. His great concern is the accomplishment of his own pleasure and the promotion of his own glory. He is the supreme being and therefore sovereign of the universe. That would be terrible news if the Bible also didn't tell us that God is good. He's not a monster. He uses his power toward good ends. So the Israelites are in an impossible situation and God put them there. Now it follows from that that God put you in your situation too. And you may be in a situation where fear is completely reasonable. That's actually the first lesson that we're going to learn about fear in this passage. Sometimes fear is completely reasonable. We should consider that because most of the time, fear is unreasonable. Have you ever heard that statistic? I don't know how they prove this, but uh, somebody they try to calm people down by saying, you shouldn't worry so much. 90% of what you worry about never happens. I've quoted that a few times from this pulpit, and then there's always some guy in the church who comes to me at the end of the service and says, yeah, but it's the other 10% you really have to worry about. Some smart aleck. If I didn't appreciate it so much, it would really upset me. So um, a lot of times, most of the time, fear is irrational. We used to read a lot of parenting magazines. They're free at the obstetrician and the the, uh, pediatrician. And uh, we used to flip through them when our kids were little. Now that we've mastered it, we don't read those magazines anymore. Parenting, we've mastered that. Um, (laughs) We've just given up is actually the truth. So... um, (laughs) In, in one of the more popular magazines, there was a, a monthly column called It Happened to Me. And the column, It Happened to Me, was some story written by a, a mother who had experienced a one-in-a-million tragedy that happened uh, to their child. My child was coloring with a marker and it exploded and her teeth are all permanently green and that's why I never play with Crayola markers again. My daughter stuffed Play-Doh up her nose and now she has a forest of vegetables growing in her nasal passages. And we don't know what to do. You read these articles and I'm not sure what the purpose of it happened to me is, but all it does is produce irrational fear. People read these columns and their child has a sniffle and they're looking for, you know, corn up the nose somehow because it happened to somebody somewhere once. Most of our fears are irrational. But this is a God-orchestrated event, and the fear is completely reasonable. It's completely normal. Has God put you in a set of circumstances where it's normal to be fearful? Think about the fears that come in the midst of of grief. What are you going to do without your mother when she dies? How how are you going to raise your kids without your husband or take care of the house or support yourself. It's completely reasonable to be afraid when you lose your job. What's next? Or when you see the marriage of your son and daughter-in-law dissolve. What's going to happen to your grandchildren? Are you, are you going to see them again? In the sovereign plans of God and for his own purposes, he sometimes puts his people his normal, everyday people in situations 
where fear is reasonable. The question becomes, what are you going to do about it now? What's next? Well, let's move on here to the second scene in this story. In the scene, I'll just call this Jonathan's bold attack on a Philistine outpost. Jonathan's bold attack on a Philistine outpost. It's described for us in chapters 13, 23 through chapter 14, 14. The main character here in this section is Jonathan, who for the first time in verse 1 of chapter 14 is introduced as John, uh, Saul's son. Uh, why is he, we, we saw Jonathan in action before. Why is he now introduced, though, as Saul's son? I think that the delay in ag- acknowledging who he is has to do with Saul's sin in chapter 13. Remember, Saul had disobeyed God, and, and part of the punishment that was going to happen to him, Samuel had said to him, you will have no dynasty, you will have no son that will rule on the throne. And lo and behold, here comes Jonathan the son. And it, the tragedy is that when we read about Jonathan, he would make an awesome king. But he's not going to become king because of the choices that his father made. This is an aside for, for just a moment here. What we see in this passage is unfolding is the generational impact that sin can have. God is speaking of his own justice in Exodus chapter 20, and he told Moses that he punishes the children of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, some people take this verse and use it to talk about God's supernatural generational curse. I think that's a terrible way to interpret that verse. But I suspect that what Exodus 20 is talking about is the fact that, that, that sometimes this punishment that he has in mind is the result often of normal human causes. When you are a parent and you make terrible choices, your children will inevitably suffer consequences from it. This is what happens to Jonathan. I think this is what I talk to people most about when I sit down with them in my office. We talk about some of the brokenness that is in their own lives because of their uh, families, the things that have happened to them uh, from their parents or their grandparents, these behaviors that have just um, spilled over into their lives. I, I talk to them about them, but I also actually get to remind them in those moments of how the gospel itself intervenes to repair brokenness. This is what the gospel does. I I see it in my my own family. You don't have to look very far back in our family tree to find sorrow. Both of my parents, they grew up going to church, uh, but they heard the gospel first as teenagers, not in the churches that they were attending. My in-laws became followers of Christ when they were young adults. My, because of the gospel, my wife and I were raised in homes that were vastly different from the homes that, in particular, our mothers were raised in. And our kids know an even more different life than we lived. It reminds me of 1 Peter 1.18, which says, The gospel redeems you from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. This is what the gospel does. All Jonathan has, though, is emptiness. It's what he experiences. Now, what we read about Jonathan here is that he's tired of Saul's inactivity. So he goes to explore how he might uh, exploit some Philistine weaknesses. 
His father set up a royal court. His father's sitting under a pomegranate tree. Jonathan wants to act, and he doesn't tell his father. Why doesn't he tell Saul? You know why. Because Saul will stop him. So he uh, ventures over. There's this interruption that happens in verse 3. It tells us about Saul's spiritual counselor, a man by the name of Ahijah. Ahijah is a priest. He's a descendant of Eli the priest. Remember him? Where did Ahijah come from? Why is he here? Who is supposed to be the spiritual guide to Saul? Who's supposed to be helping, helping him here? It's supposed to be Samuel. Samuel's been the spiritual leader of the nation, but Saul has broken his relationship with the prophet Samuel so he turns elsewhere, and Ahijah is a bad choice. The text tells us that he's a bad choice by telling us about his uncle. It's an odd way to give your genealogy in the Bible. Verse 3 says that Ahijah was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ichabod. Not Ichabod Crane. It's not Sleepy Hollow. Ichabod. Remember Ichabod? He was that baby who was born. It was a terrible day. He was born on the day that Israel lost a major battle. The ark was taken captive by the Philistines. His grandfather Eli, his father, and his uh, mother all died the day that Ichabod was born. All this came as judgment. Eli was being judged by God because he wouldn't discipline his sons. And, And Samuel the prophet had said to Eli, there will be no descendants of yours who will be high priest." Your dynasty is going to end. And when Saul is looking for spiritual guidance, he goes to that family. Bad choice. Well, Jonathan's on the move. And he puts himself in the worst possible decision. This is a tactical disaster that Jonathan puts himself in. The Philistine outpost and the Israelite outposts are separated by a valley, maybe a very wide gully, and has two huge cliffs. The cliffs are so big and so well-known that they have names. Bozes and Senna. Bozes means uh, shining, probably because the light, uh, the sun shone on it all day. Um, Senna means um, tree uh, uh, cover, uh, uh, thorny is what it means. Thorny or blackberry covered. It's not a cliff you want to climb down. So, uh, and, and what he does, Jonathan's, brilliant plan he gives up all pretense of surprise and he walks out um and, and and lets him see and then he climbs up the cliff in order to go and fight them and verse 13 says this is not this is he uses his hands and feet to climb this up uh, climb up this cliff it's a crazy plan the text doesn't say but can you imagine what the philistines were doing at the top while they're waiting for jonathan to climb the cliff how long would it be before one of them turns to his friend and say, I'll bet you a shekel you can't hit him with this rock. Right? Think that'd be happening to be tossing this over? Do you think you could pick up the pace a little bit here? It's hot out here in the sun. This actually reminds me of a scene. You're all thinking, some of you are thinking it, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, you know exactly what I'm talking about. In the movie The Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya is standing at the top of the cliff and the man in black climbing up. Are you coming? We're gonna, can we fight today? Kind of in a hurry here. This is the Philistines uh, talking to Jonathan. It's a terrible conditions to fight in. What interests me, though, here is what Jonathan says before the battle even starts. Look at verse 6. Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, 
Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Here it is. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. You have to admire the God-centeredness of this man. He's confident, but he's not presumptuous. He has full confidence in God's ability to rescue Israel at this moment, but he's not sure exactly how, but he can if God wants to rescue us here now. Remember the key question in this uh, section of Scripture. Which is more important, the size of your army or the presence of the Lord? Which matters more, the size of your army or the presence of the Lord? And um, this is a question that Gideon had to answer in Judges. He learned it. Jonathan apparently knows already. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. What I love about this, verse 7 The armor bearer says, go, man, I'm with you. (laughs) We could devote more time to this verse if if we had it, but I just want to point out to you here that Jonathan's confidence in God is inspiring. It's attractive. When the Apostle Paul wrote letters to his protégés, he told Timothy, he told Titus, you trust in God. Part of your leadership in the church is that you model the faith that you're calling people to live out. You teach them, and then you say to them, watch me, watch me, I'm going to trust God. One of the ways that elders are supposed to lead in our congregation is through their own confidence in God. Our elders pray because we believe that God hears and answers prayer. We read His Word because we believe that God answers, uh, uh, leads us through His Word. This is what uh, uh, faithful leadership looks like. Now, I'm interested in this passage of Scripture to notice here Jonathan's uncertainty. He doesn't want to presume God's presence, but he wants to act. And here we learn something else about the nature of fear and faith. So we've already talked about how the fact that sometimes faith is completely reasonable. Here's the second thing that we learn here in this scene. Faith always involves risk. Faith involves risk. Um, the reason that some of you, and by you I mean me, are hesitant to act is because you want certainty, always and every time. But faith involves risk. Jonathan's uncertainty here is, is why he talks about a sign. Uh, the Philistines, if the Philistines do this, we, we won't attack. If they do that, we'll go and attack them. Now, this is a sign. Jonathan is looking for a sign that's different than Gideon. Gideon wanted a sign that told him to get up from his couch and go move. That's a sign that he wanted. Jonathan is looking for a sign. He's already moving. He just wants to know what direction to go. Um, Maybe it's a sign like uh, track coaches used to use. I don't know if they still do this, but when you would run around a track long races, it it is easy to forget which lap you're on. So sometimes your, your coach would stand by the side with, with a signs in his hand, this is lap one, and then another sign, this is lap two. This is lap. If it's a six-lap race and you're on the fourth lap, you're going to run it differently than if it's the sixth. Uh, the, the fourth, number four, would be a sign to say, keep it steady, good pace, you're doing well. Six, number six would be the sign that says, run, go, right? So Jonathan is running and he wants us, which direction should I go? How fast should I go? Where should I go? But there's still risk. There's uncertainty here. Let me skip ahead for just a moment to the third scene, and we can contrast this with, with Saul. 
Saul and Ahijah. The battle's underway. He notices it. And verse 18, his first response when Saul learns about the battle is to say to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. Now, there is a question in this text about whether Saul is asking for the ark or whether he's talking to Ahijah about the ephod, the high priestly ephod. My uh, translation has in the footnotes, bring the ephod. Yours might too. I think that's actually what he's looking for. So remember the high priest, Ahijah, he would have this. He would have this breastplate on him. And uh, as part of it, there would be kind of a, a vest. And inside the vest, they would keep two little stones called the Urim and the Thummim. And this is a way that God communicated his will to the Israelites. The high priest would reach in and he would pull out one of the stones and based on its color, it would be an indication of God's will. It's one of the ways that God leads uh, his people. And Saul calls Ahijah. Now, is this a good move or a bad move? Some scholars look at this and they think that um, Saul is... Um, Saul is reaching out for God's instruction that he wants, that the priest is supposed to talk to, to, to um, uh, give a charge before they go to battle. So Saul's seeking God. Well, maybe. I wonder, though, if this is just another way that Saul's dithering. Is he procrastinating? He's looking for absolute certainty. Either way, the story doesn't end well. It doesn't. He, he, um, before Ahijah apparently can act, the noise from the Philistine camp is so loud, verse 19, that Saul says, oh, just put that thing away. Well, the text says, withdraw your hand. But what he means is, put that thing away. Right? He didn't even listen. He should have listened to God a little bit ago, and he refused, and now he wants, he tells God to be quiet. It's not going to go well for Saul. There's going to come a day when Saul desperately wants to hear from God and God is not going to speak to him. Saul, I think in this passage, wants certainty. But faith always involves risk. I listened to a conversation this week between Jonathan Lehman and Mark Dever and they were talking about authority in the church. Um, It's a touchy subject. What is the proper use of authority in a church. God has given authority. It's a good gift, but it's been so often abused that some people, they almost with a veil of spiritual superiority, decline to use authority or they're afraid to use it. But, but Mark Dever said uh, that uh, it reminds him, when he sees that, it reminds him of the parable that Jesus told about the servant who was giving a, a talent and he buried it in the ground because he was afraid of what might happen if he used it. Faith involves risk. Jesus called that man who wouldn't uh, risk a worthless servant. Here's an illustration of of our tendency as human beings to be risk-adverse. I mention it because it has some relevance to our congregation. Several years ago, Steve Groves, he's a psychiatrist, who did research to discover why human beings don't usually respond when fire alarms go off. Why do people, when an alarm goes off in a building, not move? Why do they sit there and wait for more information? 
uh, it's an interesting study he did. He actually had a video of a soccer stadium. There was a fire going on in the soccer stadium, and people sat in the stands and watched the fire. Uh, they didn't get up and move. They just sat there and, and watched. And when people, he has observed, when they, people finally do move, we are not inclined to use emergency exits because we have this preference to enter a building uh, through the same door that we came in to the building. He said, human, be- human beings just don't like change. We want to know what new story we're stepping into before we exit the old one. We want certainty. Now, what's interesting in this text, you might have a, a question that moves from this. How do you know what risks are wise And what risks are foolish? How do you know that? Jonathan asked for a sign. What do we do? Well, when we ask that question, we've actually moved on from whether or not you're going to exercise faith. We've moved on to how do you make a wise risk and how do you tell that from a foolish risk? How can you tell the difference between the two? Well, there's a long answer to that question, I would would think. Um, I'll just give two the word of God and the wise counsel of of your friends. God put you in this congregation so that you would take wise risks, not foolish risks. So there'd be people who would tell you and and speak to you about your choices. Well, faith involves risk. Our only certainty is that God is going to work through both our successes and failures to accomplish his purposes. Fear demands certainty and it will remain inactive. Some of you have thought about talking to a friend of yours or a neighbor about what it means to follow Jesus. You know somebody, you're pretty close to them, you spend a lot of time with them, and you've really, really never talked to them about Christ's death and his resurrection. You're waiting for what will never actually come, that perfect moment when you'll have no risks. You're waiting for that perfect moment when you are uh, well-rested and duly caffeinated and have all the free time in the world and then there's no distractions and you're absolutely sure that this isn't going to cost you anything. You're just waiting for that one perfect moment when you can talk to them and that perfect moment is never going to come. Faith involves risk. Now let's move on here to scene number three. All right, scene number three. The Lord saves the Israelites from the Philistines. The Lord saves the Israelites from the Philistines. This is subject to chapter 4, 15 through 23 here. The focus moves from Jonathan to God himself. Clearly, God is at work here. Verse 15 says, It was a panic sent by God. Verse 20, the, Israel, uh, the Philistines are in total confusion. They're striking each other with their own swords. This is This is awesome. The Israelites don't have any swords to defeat the Philistines. So what does God do? He defeats the Philistines with their own swords. (laughs) This is a great part of the story. Verse 23 says, On that day the Lord saved Israel. Just like in Exodus 14, this is God's doing. The Lord saved Israel. It's what he does. He saves. It all started with Jonathan, and Saul missed out. Jonathan was the catalyst for this reaction here. Now, remember, we're talking about fear and faith. What does this passage teach us? We've learned so far that fear is sometimes reasonable. We've talked about how faith involves risk. 
here is something else that this final scene, I think, teaches us. God often works among his people through the faithfulness of a few. God often works through his people, through the, among his people, through the faithfulness of a few. When I was in my office, I was preparing for today, I was, wrote that sentence down, and I thought to myself, is that really true? Can we really prove that from the Bible? And if it is, why is it really true? Or why does God often work that way? Well, I'll start with the why first, I think. Scenes like this in the Bible are here to prepare God's people for the king who is to come. Remember, God's ultimate king is the Lord Jesus himself, and we are a people who are uh, drawn together by our common commitment to the Lord Jesus. He's the one who obeyed and for the joy set before him endured the cross. He went to war against sin and death on our behalf. Everything that we do, everything we have, everything we are is the result of the work of his attack on our common enemy. He's our champion. He's the catalyst through whom God works among his people. He stormed the gates of hell by becoming sin for us on the cross, bearing God's wrath in our stead, dying and rising again. Why does God work this way? To get us ready for the Lord Jesus, who is that soldier marching to take on the enemy climbing the, the walls to, to slay them all. God works through the faith of Jonathan to rescue Israel. God works through Jesus to rescue us all. So that pattern is etched here in the Bible for us. Great. But does God work that way still through the faithfulness of a few among his people? I think you can demonstrate that even from the New Testament. Remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4 the Lord Jesus has given to the church apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists who play a vital role in calling and equipping the church to action. He calls husbands to lead their families in faith. He calls moms to model faith to their children, just like Timothy's mother Eunice did for him. This is what God... I'm not suggesting that there are first and second class citizens in God's church. It is if there are the faithful few and everybody else just kind of follows along. What, <coughs> what I'm actually suggesting is that this is a call to all of us. Think about this here. Who in your family, who in your circle of influence, your growth group, your family, your ministry, the friends you hang out with after church, who is setting the pace of faithfulness in that group? Why isn't it you? This is how God often works. I'll finish with this. In his book, True Religion, Palmer Chinchin wrote about a book, uh, 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 wrote a book about a trip that he took with his brothers to the western edge of Zimbabwe. They were going to go raft the Zambezi River. And they got in their raft uh, on the Zambezi River right below Victoria Falls. Victoria Falls are the largest falls in the world. It's a mile wide, 300 feet tall, the water just drops in torrents. You can see mist rising from Victoria Falls 50 miles away. It, it comes down over the, the falls and it just roars through this uh, gorge. And um, this is the world's largest rapids. Uh, in the United States, uh, whitewater rafting is done on Class 5 rapids. Rapids in the Zambezi River reach um, uh, Class 7 and Class 8. It's, it's not a easy place to go for a nice canoe ride. 
So they got on the, the raft, um, and, and the guide said to them, when the raft flips, <laughs> Palmer said, I didn't like how he started that sentence. I would have rather him said, if the raft flips. But instead he said, when the raft flips, stay in the rough water. You'll be tempted, very tempted, to swim toward the still water, the stagnant water on the sides, but if you, it, you have to stay in the rapids because if you swim towards the still water, there will be crocodiles waiting for you there. <laughs> Chinchin, he wrote this, Stagnancy will kill your spirit. The church must resist stagnancy. God calls us out there in the rough waters, pouring our lives into people. Live in the white water. Live where there's just a little bit uncertainty and a little bit, uh, you're a little bit unsafe. You see the contrast in the story between Saul and Jonathan? A father's fear, a son's faith. See, the greatest risk actually in this story is missing out. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your great mercy to us through the Lord Jesus. We thank you that like Jonathan or more correctly, Jonathan, like him, the Lord Jesus stormed the gates of hell for us. He is our Savior, and it is through him that you work among us. Lord, I do pray, though, that you would call us out of our fear, out of our desire to control our own destinies and to set our own path, Lord, remind us of the necessity of trusting in you even when we don't, and especially when we don't have all the answers and, and all of our comforts aren't laid out so smoothly before us. Uh, you work through your people as a catalyst for great things, so work through us, us as individual followers of yours. Do this because of your great the great promises that you have made to us through the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.